2 Samuel chapter 9, and we're going to be flipping back and forth from that place. So if you want to just go ahead and kind of mark it or put your finger there or whatever it is you do. Um, we'll be coming and going from that passage several times throughout this lesson. Um, but we're actually going to start in 1 Samuel. Um, if you would turn to 1 Samuel chapter 20, that's where we're going to begin. 1 Samuel chapter 20. Um, you know, so, some lessons serve kind of different purposes, right? Um, some lessons are here to maybe warn or admonish someone or some group of people. Some lessons are purely just um, help in understanding some text or some point that's being made by God. Um, this lesson, I kind of envision it as just being an, an encouraging lesson. Help us maybe, for those of us who are Christians in this room, to, to help us appreciate um, what it is God has done for us as Christians. And so, with that in mind, I want to use 2 Samuel 9, that passage I said to put your finger at, as kind of the basis for helping us appreciate what God has done for us as Christians, because I think uh, this will become clear as we move through this, that that is a type or a model of what God has done for Christians. With that said, we're going to talk about uh, a difficult name this morning. Uh, Mephibosheth, I guess is how you say it. I don't really know. That's my best attempt at it. Um, he's a character that I don't think I paid much attention to before, maybe a year or two ago, when someone brought him to my attention. Um, and he's easily overlooked because he's not really an important figure um, as the narrative of history goes, nor really in, particularly in God's narrative. Um, but he's a prominent figure in that, like I said, he's going to serve as our type or our shadow of what God is able to do for Christians. So let's, let's begin reminding ourselves of Mephibosheth's story a little bit. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, if you would turn here with me, we're going to read uh, a little bit what precludes or uh, goes before Mephibosheth here. Beginning in verse 14. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 14. This is uh, when J Jonathan and David are kind of making this, this plan to figure out if Saul is going to harm David or not. And Jonathan being Saul's son, but a tight friend with David, um, is going to go to his father and kind of ask him some questions. And depending on how Saul answers or responds to these questions, he's going to give David kind of a, a hidden message or a word uh, on what Saul's intent is for David and whether he should come to this big feast, this big celebration or not. And this is in the middle of uh, the back and forth between Saul being the acting king, but David being the king in deed or in name given by God. The, the, the heir, if you will, not by birthright, but by God's choosing. And so Saul had already tried to kill David on several occasions. And so this plan is hatched out by Jonathan and David, but in the hatching out of this plan, trying to determine if Saul would indeed kill, attempt to kill David or not. This is what's said beginning in verse 14. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And don't cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. 
And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. All right, so we have these words of Jonathan. And you notice what he's making David kind of promise to, even though they're, they're good friends here. He's saying, if I live through this, right, show me steadfast, show me love, show me steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. Verse 15, don't cut off your steadfast love. So this love doesn't need to end, right? Don't cut it off from my house forever, right? So at first he's saying, if I live, continue to show me love. But even beyond my life, don't ever cut off your love from my house, right? When the Lord cuts off every one of of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan recognizes that David is God's appointed king, right? Even though his dad is the acting king, and that would make Jonathan the next in line to be king, right? He recognizes God's appointment of David. Um, I think this promise is significant in our lesson um, because it shows before we ever even see Mephibosheth, being a son of Jonathan, we come to see, that he's really kind of the heir to this promise in a way, right? Jonathan asked David, don't pull back or hold back your love for my house forever, right? Even though on paper we should be enemies of your house because we're next in line to inherit the kingdom, right? We have something to stand to benefit physically if Saul remains king. Um, Look at verse 42 towards the end of this, uh, this chapter here. Jonathan says to David, Go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And so again, we have this this permanent oath or this covenant between them, that there would be no love lost due to time or circumstance between their, their houses, right? And so Mephibosheth, before we ever even know who he is, really, um, he stands to gain from this covenant, this, this promise that's given between David and Jonathan. And so I think it's interesting just to point this out as we move through this. This is how this lesson's going to go. We're going to look at something that Mephibosheth is, right? An heir to a promise. And we're going to see how Christ has fulfilled that for us as well. And so we're going to be turning back and forth between prominently 2 Samuel and the New Testament. If you would turn to Galatians chapter 3. Obviously with these kinds of lessons, um, it's hard to kind of sit in one text, which is usually the preference, just because... For me, at least, it's easier for me to understand the context and things like that um, of a verse. But I am going to be kind of pulling from different places just to illustrate concepts, right? Um, and that's all I'm trying to illustrate. And mostly the two or three verses that I'm going to be referencing are self-explanatory. And so look at verse uh, 29 of Galatians chapter 3. Just as Mephibosheth, before he even comes around, there's a promise in place that he's going to benefit from, right? He's going to be the heir of this promise, and we're going to see that fulfilled in 2 Samuel. Look in chapter 3 of Galatians, verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to a promise. So we share some similarity, if we're a Christian, with Mephibosheth, in that before we were ever even around, we're benefiting from some promise that took place before we were ever here, right? And that's just a kind of a... A simple concept to understand that we're benefiting from some things that have taken place before you or I ever even existed. 
there's promises, and certainly we can see from other scriptures there's plans and things being fulfilled and made before we were here to benefit from them. Um, and so that's the model for the rest of this lesson. I want to look at these things that Mephibosheth uh, takes advantage of or has happened to him or realizes that are similar to what we can have in Christ. Okay, so let's move to Second uh, Samuel chapter 9, our prominent text just for the morning. 2 Samuel chapter 9. So just as Mephibosheth, before he's ever even around, is going to be the recipient or the benefit, the bene, uh, receive the benefit from a promise, he's going to be the heir of that promise. Um, he's also unworthy of the promise, right? Um, and I think he even recognizes that. Let's look in 2 Samuel and let's look in verse 3 here. As David asks this question in verse 1, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? He's remembering the promise or the covenant he made with Jonathan, right? Well, let's move down to verse 3. The king said, Is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan, and he's crippled in his feet. Right? Um, I'm not sure I understand all of the implications of what it is to be lame or crippled um, throughout history. I know today that there are some things that we assume with that, right? There are some things that we might uh, understand with that when we experience someone in our family or a friend or just a passerby that's in that situation, right? Um, life is a little more difficult for those people, right? Even with all the, the progression we've had today, um, in, in that realm, it's still a difficult life to live. We have to acknowledge that, right? Um, and I think there's some sense, even historically, that one who was crippled was kind of a lesser person. And I'm not saying that's the right way to think about it, but that's kind of, especially when it came to a royal bloodline, it would kind of be a shame to have a son that wasn't full, that wasn't right, that wasn't perfect and strong, right? That would be the heir to your kingdom. Um, and so it would kind of seem on an earthly level that Mephibosheth would be kind of unworthy of the promises or the, being the heir to this great promise, right? Let alone, we know it doesn't unfold this way, but let alone Saul's kingdom, right? To have this cripple be the king of this great nation. Um, we, and we certainly, uh, if you would turn, go a little further down in the passage, I think Mephibosheth even realizes this in verse 8. And this is Mephibosheth, uh, and he paid homage, this is to David, and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? All right, and we're skipping around in these verses a little bit, and I appreciate uh, James working through this and reading it for us. If you recall in the reading, David asked this question. Ziba points out this guy, right? David goes and finds him and brings him to him. And basically, and we're going to talk more about each kind of these components as we move on, but basically restores to him lands and has an eat and things like that. And this is his response to all the blessings that David bestows on him due to the promise, right? He pays homage and he bows down. He says, who am I? What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Mephibosheth recognizes that before David, he really has no value or worth. He's not worthy of the kindness David has showed to him. He hasn't done anything for David. In fact, he's of kind of a rival family if you were just to look at it, right? His uncle, Ishbosheth, I think is how you say it, even led a rebellion against David. And so his family's 
on paper is set against David's. Uh, And so, similarly, if you would turn to Romans chapter 5, just like Galatians 3 expresses plainly that Christians, or those in Christ, as it says, are heirs of a promise, uh, we're similarly unworthy of the promise that we're heirs to. Um, Look in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Um, You know, if someone does something to benefit you, typically we think of repaying them in kind, right? We have that phrase, repaying them in kind. We do something to then benefit them. Or we receive benefit because we have been beneficial, right? And that's not the picture that Romans 5 paints. And so in a sense, we get this feeling that we're unworthy, right? I mean, that's the implication of being an enemy, as verse 10 says, right? We're not worthy of any compassion from our enemy, right? We're set against one another. They don't want to give us that. But God has done that. And again, in Colossians chapter 1, just to reiterate this point, um, Colossians chapter 1, and we'll read verses 21 through 23. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So it's the same idea repeated in maybe a little bit slightly different way. We're alienated, we're hostile, and we might sum that up by saying, we're not who you'd expect to receive the mercy and the grace of God. And in that sense, we were unworthy, right? Um, But God has given it to those in Christ. Um, So just like Mephibosheth, we're heirs of a promise, a promise to which we're unworthy to even have, right? Um, Let's go back to 2 Samuel and look at another aspect of this. Um, We've highlighted this a little bit just in describing who Mephibosheth is and talking about maybe why he feels unworthy. Um, But that he was kind of helpless, right? In this situation, the way his life had unfolded, he had been kind of the helpless recipient of a lot of things. Um, He didn't get to choose his dad being Saul and the way his family kind of played out, right? I mean, his dad ended up kind of, we might say, more or less going crazy in the middle and later parts of his life. And the consequence of that is in the day that he finds out or that Saul and Jonathan are both killed on the same day, it looks like this nurse that's caring for Mephibosheth tries to run away, probably fleeing Uh, for his life, thinking that David's going to come and kill all of his heirs, right? She trips, and it harms Mephibosheth in the escape, and that's why he's crippled. Nothing that he did, right? He's kind of a helpless recipient of that. And then through his life, he's just kind of away. He's gone. He's out of the picture. And he's a cripple. He's helpless even in his day-to-day in a lot of ways, right? relying on the mercy of other people. And so Mephibosheth, look at verse 3. Um, I think this illustrates this. The king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? 
Ziba said, there's still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. He's even helpless in that he didn't ask or seek out David's mercy. You know, he didn't help himself, right? Um, And probably would have been helpless if he had tried to do that. Who would he have reached out to? Who would have helped him do that? And so I think just about in every way we consider Mephibosheth, he seems helpless. And I'm not to say he, I'm not saying that in the sense of he's pathetic, but he just can't help himself or have done anything different to lift himself out of his situation in a lot of ways, right? Well, I think the same is true with us. Uh, if you go to just a few verses before what we read in Romans 5, verses 6 through 9, we see a similar portrait for Christians. Again, in Romans 5, we'll pick up a few verses before what we just read, 6 through 9. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So again, as it's portrayed here, as we're talking about those who have been justified by faith in Christ, the picture that's painted before the justification, before you know whatever terms you want to use in that, the redemption, all these things, is that we're weak. That, in a sense, we're helpless. right? Verse 8 says, while we were still sinners, right? That seems to be the weakness that we're suffering from. Uh, There was nothing that we could do to help ourselves out of that position within ourselves, right? Kind of like Mephibosheth, there was nothing within himself that could change his, his state, right? He needed the grace of other people to kind of intervene in his life to change his position. And that's, that's what God is for Christians. He's the one that intervenes, He's the outside power that changes our circumstances, right? All right, so just like Mephibosheth, we are heirs to a promise. We're unworthy of the promise in that we're, we're kind of helpless in that, in that we rely on some outside source here. Go back to 2 Samuel again, chapter 9. Let's uh, read the beginning of this story again, verses 1 through 3. David said, is there still anyone left in the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Verse 3, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? I think this ties closely with being helpless, but Mephibosheth is sought by the king. Like, he's sought out by the king. Um, It would have been something if Ziba had sought him out and recommended him to the king. That still would have been a flattering thing, I imagine, Uh, a gracious thing. But the king himself remembered the promise, and the king himself said, hey, is there not somebody who I can show some kindness to for the sake of the promise I made to Jonathan? I just think that's a really interesting concept and really interesting uh, type here in this, is that the king himself seeks out this lowly guy, right? And certainly our minds, if the, the simple structure of this lesson, our minds are probably thinking of passages that this reminds us of even in the New Testament. I just picked one out. I'm sure you can think of other ones. Um, Luke 19, this is the passage that it reminded me of. Um, these words of uh, Jesus here in Luke 19. Uh, 
Luke 19, look at verse 9 with me, if you're there. Luke 19, verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Certainly there are scriptures in, uh, around that portray Jesus royally, right? Portray him in some sort of kingly fashion. Whether it's kind of the terminology we might think of as being a prince, whether we see him sitting at the right hand, whether we view him with a crown, with many diadems kind of picture, we see him in a, in a royal position in a lot of different images throughout the Bible. And so for him to be able to say that he is seeking and saving those who are lost is a similar picture to what we see David seeking out Mephibosheth. The king himself is seeking somebody out, right? And I think that's an interesting parallel, that we, like, we are like Mephibosheth in that. All right, in verse 4 of 2 Samuel 9, it says this, The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. All right, so when David says, Is there somebody I can show kindness to from the house of Jonathan? This guy actually knows where he is. He knows who he's staying with. Um, and he tells David. And I think this is interesting because uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, this is not a close place. Um, this was a far away place. Now today, nobody really knows exactly where this place is, but there's a couple kind of concepts of where it is. Some good leads. And you're looking at 70 or 80 miles away from Jerusalem, which is... Decent distance today, right? But it's a much bigger deal then. I think the concept is that he's not next door, right? He's not in Jerusalem. He's not in the city of the king. He's away, right? Having been the descendant of Saul, you might, one might expect he's been in Jerusalem or trying to get in Jerusalem, but he's not. He's far away, and you imagine he's kind of laying low, right? And uh, it's interesting that this, the name of this place, Lodabar, I assume, is how you say it. Uh, it's translated as no pasture. Uh, so he's far away in kind of this place that's known for not being a pasture land, right? Um, and I, I just, the picture of that is so vivid to me, that the king is seeking out somebody who's far away in a pastureless land, right? Uh, and so you may be thinking about passages in your mind again that maybe this uh, is similar to. For Christians, I would point to a couple things here. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, if you want to turn there and read this, read this with me. Ephesians chapter 2, this is the very first passage that when I uh, encountered that information that I thought of. Ephesians 2.11, Therefore remember that at one time you, Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you are at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Um, again, that, that picture is... You know, if we're thinking about Jesus kind of in royal terms, this, this prince or this king kind of coming along, and he's found you, right? And you're in a faraway place, 
as a as this uh, passage says, those who are uncircumcised or Gentile or are not Christians, right? We might think about it that way. In our faraway place, but Christ and his blood brings you near, right? And ultimately we know that's what David does. He sins for Mephibosheth to come from the faraway pastoralist place and to come to him and the city of the king in Jerusalem. Um, and so I think when we look at David doing that, it's a kind and gracious thing for him to do, but I think we're seeing a picture of really what Jesus perfects and how he brings someone from far away close. Um, we might think of Psalm 23 about how God is the shepherd, right? And where is he leading us? He's leading us by green pastures and waters and makes us lie down in those places. Um, and so I think of Mephibosheth being taken from a place of no pasture to Jerusalem where there's plenty, right? Where the king is living. And then I think of Jesus doing the same thing. All right. So he is an heir of a promise, just as we are. He's unworthy of the promise, just as we are. He's helpless, just as we are. And sought by a king, just as we are. And found far away, just as we were. Uh, and then he is made as a son. Uh, in Second Samuel 9, we see this in verses 5 through 7. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, at Lodipar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Don't fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant? that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. <clears throat> I don't know exactly how uh, David's relationship was with all of his sons. We certainly see how his relationship with some of his sons was uh, pretty dramatic and uh, negative. But it looks like Mephibosheth is kind of being taken in like he would take in a son, right? Like, he says, you were far away and in this pastoralist place. I'm going to bring you in. I'm going to give you a place to stay. And not only are you going to have food to eat, you're going to eat with me at the table, right? For the king to say that is a big deal. I mean, for anyone to say that to someone in need is a big deal, but even more so when it's the king, right? Because not only are you getting a meal, you're getting the glory of being in the king's presence. You're getting the respect of dining with the king. You go from a nobody to a somebody pretty instantly, right? And so I, I kind of picture this as just being made like a son. And we don't have any official word that, you know, he's given the king's name or anything like that. But he's being treated like his own. Like he loved Jonathan, so he's loving Mephibosheth in the same way. Uh, and so I think this is a beautiful picture, and I think it's one that's replicated uh, in Galatians 4 by, by Jesus and perfected here. Um, Galatians 4, and we'll read verses 4 through 7, which we actually just read a moment ago. Um, Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Um, so again, Christians have experienced what Mephibosheth experienced. Being brought in, having been an heir to some promise that you're unworthy of, and you were helpless to help yourself in. Uh, we've been brought from far away. We've been made heirs. and We've been made like sons. Just as David did for Mephibosheth. And the last thing that I want to point out in this is part of this being made as a son, which I was just elaborating on, is that he got to eat at the king's table. Uh, I don't really understand experientially, obviously, or even intellectually, what all this entailed and what kind of stuff went into this, what kind of politicking might have gone on to be in the king's court at his table or whatever. But it's a big deal. I can understand that kind of on a surface level right it's a big deal to be a part of the king's table the closest thing that i can imagine is maybe being invited to like eat at the president's table right you're invited not only to be a part of some ball or whatever that they're at but you're sitting at his table Um, that's what mephibosheth experienced he went from being some nobody lame crippled guy in a faraway place probably fearing for his life if David ever figured out where he was, he might get killed, right? Two, being brought in, be given food, given sanctuary or a pardon, if you will, and restored to the king's table. Uh, look in Luke chapter 22. This is the last couple passages we'll look at. Luke 22, verse 14. Obviously, this is a passage we read a lot. Uh, When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes, it has been determined, but woe to the man whom he has betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them could be, uh, it could be, who was going to do this. So in Jesus' last days, we talk about this a lot, I feel like, but... There was a kind of a table and a, and a dinner happening, right? And Jesus obviously makes some points and some images throughout this Passover meal that they were sharing, right? But we know that later, this is something that people who believe in Jesus' message and his story and who he was try to share in this. They don't get to share in it with Jesus being there, maybe like the apostles did this one time, right? But it's something that they use to kind of remember Jesus by. Um, So similarly, as Mephibosheth got to eat at this table with David, the apostles literally experienced maybe a parallel scenario, right? Um, Christians experience a similar scenario, uh, and they look forward to maybe a time that it's more parallel. Uh, As Jesus promises here, um, he will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Uh, But look look with me to uh, Revelation chapter 19. The only point that I want to make with this is just the significance of being at God's table, right? Whatever Revelation 19 might mean, um, I think there's some helpful ways to think about it. 
I'm not sure if I totally understand all the ways we could think about it, or maybe even what God means all the time. But minimally, I can look at Revelation 19, 9, which reads this. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Right? Blessed are those who get to be at the dinner table, more or less, of the Lamb. Right? I think that's something that we as Christians, in whatever way that we participate in that now, or we look forward to participating in that, is something that we can, like Mephibosheth, understand how much is behind that, and the meaning, and the power, and the glory that comes with that, and the graciousness that that's extended to us. Right? Like Mephibosheth got to come in and eat at David's table. Revelation 19.9 says, there are going to be those who are invited to this dinner. And they're going, to be the, they're going to be happy because they got invited, right? Um, and so I think as Christians, that's something like Mephibosheth we can look forward to and be happy about. And 1 Corinthians 11, you know, when we're trying to figure out our part in looking forward to that and remembering what Christ did in Luke 22, we can remember these words and know that, uh, in a sense, we are being invited even now to be a part of something uh, of God's table. And so I hope this lesson was just, it was meant to be an encouraging one. Uh, I don't know if you guys have really ever paid attention to the story of Mephibosheth. I hadn't really until about a year ago, and it was because somebody pointed it out to me, not even in my own reading. Um, It's an interesting parallel. And I think as beautiful of an image as it is and of David doing these marvelous things and living up to his word, I think it's there to be such a clear picture uh, of Jesus for us that we are like Mephibosheth um, when we're not, you know, when he's far away and he's lame. But then we're also like Mephibosheth as Christians when he gets brought near. Um, and so I hope this was encouraging for you. Certainly if there's, there's anyone here that feels like Mephibosheth when he's far away and in hiding, that's something we can talk about with you if that's something you just want help with Um, and certainly uh, there's really no better group of people I would imagine to try to help figure that out with you we don't have all the answers but we want to try to to be a part of of God and be in a position to be at his table and to be invited there Um, and so if that's something that you're seeking out in your life let us help you with that Um, if that's something that um, you recognize today that you need help with. And uh, I think this time that Richard has picked out this song for us to lead would maybe be a good time to reach out to somebody if you find yourself in that spot. Thank you.